Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash wondery. You hear that? Your dog knows. Spring is coming sooner than you think. But the warmer weather also means that fleas and ticks are coming back. Fleas are an itchy nuisance and can easily get into your home, furniture, and beds, which can be terrible. Ticks are even worse. They're hard to spot but can carry disease and get your dog really sick. Pet Med's pharmacists connect directly with your vet to save you time and deliver the best flea and tick products for your pet. Pet Meds offers low prices on all flea and tick meds, including Nexgard, Simperica, and more. Visit PetMeds.com and use promo code PODCAST to save 40% on your first auto ship order. That's PetMeds.com promo code PODCAST for 40% off your first auto ship order. A warning. This episode contains graphic content that may be difficult for some listeners. Please listen with care. Not so long ago, I found myself sitting on a stage in northern Maine talking about monsters. This was not as strange as it might sound. In my line of work, I travel to a lot of horror conventions, and I end up sitting on a lot of different stages. Half the time, the topic is monsters, the ones that populate the movies I love and the ones that live in the comics I write. The difference, this time around, was the line of questioning. I'd been talking for about half an hour when my interviewer, a local author, uncrossed his slender legs and asked if anyone in the audience had anything to ask of our famous guest. The first guy that stood up was about six feet tall, with thinning hair he wore swept back from his forehead. He was dressed elegantly in a sweater and button-down, unusual enough in a sea of fleece jackets, and his eyes were hollowed in his skull. The effect was enhanced by the glare of the overhead lights. They gave his skin a papery pallor. You write a lot about monsters that the rest of us don't actually believe in, the guy said. Reptiles, werewolves, murder goats, whatever. A chuckle rolled through the theater. I'm wondering if you'd ever consider addressing the other kind of monster. The real kind, he went on. The kind of monster that looks more like a man. I stared back, unnerved. Of course I knew exactly what he meant. I'd met far more of the human type of monster than I ever had the type with fur. But that's not what was giving me pause. Instead, it was the certainty that this guy, this well-dressed, gray-haired gentleman, had a story to tell. Which, well... I was right about that. More than right. Because his story, it would be one of the most frightening tales I'd ever heard.
You're listening to Run Fool. I'm Rodney Barnes, and this is episode 16, The Vampire of Mercy Notch, part one. Two hours later, Bill, the name of my gray-haired friend, and I were sitting at a tavern in downtown Bangor. Tucked into a back booth, drinking Geary's beer and listening to Blue Oyster Cult bang out of the adjacent jukebox. Outside, the snow fell in big, buttery flakes. Bill explained that he was a retired cop, and I guessed right away that he'd been a damn good one. He could do the active listening thing, and he could turn on a sympathetic, tell-me-anything look as fast as he could show anger. Above all, he had a Sherlockian eye for detail. A flash of the sweatshirt under my coat was enough to tell him where I'd grown up and what college I'd attended. From my gate, he'd guessed that I played football in high school, but not later than that, and that I'd got my ACL hammered, thus ending my short and not particularly glorious career. I could discern less about him. He might have been 65, or he could have been 78. He drank cautiously, as if he was afraid of what was in his beer glass. We'd gotten through some of the small talk, and I was starting to think about my long flight back to L.A., which was scheduled for the next morning, when he finally said it. The stuff about monsters, he smiled. Got to you, didn't it? My grandmother had always told me never lie to a cop, not if you can help it, so I nodded. And you've met the kind of monster I mentioned, Bill went on. A second nod, but not exactly the kind I'm thinking about, he concluded. I wanted to ask what this old man knew of what I'd seen, but I just flashed a small smile, flagged down the bartender, and reclined into the booth with a fresh beer. Bill began to talk. He talked for three hours, more or less nonstop, more than I can possibly recount here. I'll need to abbreviate some parts for which I'm profoundly sorry because Bill, he could spin a yarn. But I will tell you the beginning of his story, at least in its entirety. I have to tell you the beginning of the story because all the clues to what would come were there. If only in retrospect. You've heard of Mercy Notch, Bill asked. Small town about an hour north of here, an hour and a half down Route 1. This time I didn't react. It didn't matter. Bill wasn't listening. He was deep in his own thoughts. In the 1980s, he said, he'd been the sheriff of Mercy Notch a main town small enough not to merit a full-time police force nor a full-time fire department. The firefighters were volunteers, as was Bill's deputy, a scrawny kid named Flynn. But Bill at least was paid, paid to patrol and protect the 4,000-year-round residents of this patch of coastal Maine shoreline. Most years, the worst that happened was a couple of houses were broken into, a couple of fights started at the bar, or maybe a hiker slipped off the rocky trail in the nature preserve. Then came Eben Toll. Eben was 16 at the time of his disappearance, and at first Bill was inclined to think the kid had simply run away. His mom was a notorious drunk, and his dad was gone half the year logging up near Baxter State Park. When dad was home, he was a notorious drunk too. As a result, Eben had the demeanor of a war veteran and plenty of scars, which Bill would learn when he finally did track down Eben, although that comes later. Anyway, point is, no one would have blamed the young man if he had decided to just, well, escape. But Bill was absolutely positive from his initial visit to the Toll home that Eben had not run away. 
The kid had not packed any of his clothes, nor were any of the bags missing from his closet. It was the middle of November, 30 degrees during the day, 15 at night, and somehow he hadn't taken his coat either. But here's what sealed it. Bill learned from Evan's girlfriend that the two of them were planning to elope. They'd booked the bus tickets and everything. The girlfriend showed them to Bill, one way to Boston. Departure date was two days from the evening of Evan's disappearance. Unless he was planning on ditching the girl, it didn't make much sense. And other friends made a point of telling Bill how stupidly smitten Evan was. So yeah, in Bill's estimation, Evan Toll hadn't escaped, which left two alternatives, an accident or foul play. And here's where I tell you something important. Eben Toll was black, or half. His dad was black, his mom white. And this was exceptionally rare in Mercy Notch, where nearly everyone was either a white oyster farmer, a white lobsterman, a white tradesman, or a rich white person with a nice summer home. It occurred to Bill that this might matter, which it did, although not nearly in the way he initially suspected. The timeline of Eben Toll's disappearance was straightforward. On November 14th, the boy had said goodnight to his mother and headed upstairs to finish his homework. The next morning, his mom, who managed to get herself out of bed around 9.30 with a vicious hangover, entered his room and found it entirely empty. That'd be okay on, say, a Monday. But it was a Saturday. No school. Where was Evan? She rang a few friends and her son's girlfriend, but no one was any wiser. And so finally, she called the sheriff. Bill showed up, Case Evans' room, noticed the presence of all the bags in the jacket, and also a line of footprints in the snow, prints leading away from the house. Bill had asked Evans' mom if the footprints belonged to her, but she just laughed. She hadn't left the house in three days. Being a booze hound did that to you. The footprints must have been Evans, but where was he going? There wasn't much behind the house, save the forest and a dirt road that spun and twisted through the woods for about three miles, past three properties before reaching the Atlantic shore. Bill called up his deputy, Flynn, and together they followed the footprints out to the dirt road, at which point they vanished. Or not vanished, I guess. The dirt road was in semi-regular use, and it was iced over and hard as a skating rink. Footprints wouldn't have shown up there. Treading gingerly, Flynn and Bill followed the road for about a mile, at which point it split in thirds, like the tines of a fork. Flynn got out a county assessor's map and read aloud from the details. The far left fork led to a summer house owned by a family called the Petersons. The place was unlikely to be occupied at this time of the year. The middle one, Flynn said, Mem Proctor, Bill interrupted, belongs to Mem. Flynn looked astounded. But Mercy Notch was a small place. Everyone knew each other. A lot of the time, they were even related. Mim's my cousin, Bill explained, and not a cousin he particularly liked either, although he left that part out. What about the third house? Flynn paused, eyebrows raised. Wesley Mercer. He would not have needed to say more to anyone in the town of Mercy Notch, and certainly not to its sheriff, since Bill was the one who had arrested Wesley Mercer five years earlier for what appeared to be molestation. I say appeared to be because Mercer had almost certainly been messing with a couple of the kids he coached on the high school wrestling team. Bill had collected all the necessary proof, but then Mercer had managed to hire a good attorney, courtesy of a wealthy family member, 
and one of the kids had decided to recant. The other was ripped apart on the stand. Mercer lost his job and his reputation, but kept his freedom. And for the past four years and three quarters, he'd been as good as a hermit. Sometimes people saw him skulking through the grocery store, but that's all they saw. Let's go west to east, Bill suggested. Save the best for last. He and Flynn tramped up about a half a mile, breathing hard in the raw cold. The house owned by the Petersons, the summer people, was ugly and red. One story. And in the picture window, facing the road, stood a teenage boy, his eyes staring forward and also nowhere at all. As Bill and Flynn watched, the boy opened his mouth and began to scream. Without thinking, Bill charged forward, leaving Flynn behind him on the road, messing with the catch that kept his service pistol in its holster. He expected the door to be locked, but it gave way instantly under his hand, and he found himself in a dark hallway lined with boots. The house was quiet, save a muted scuffling, underfoot somewhere, in the basement. Bill stood at the window, the same picture window in which he'd spotted the teenage boy, and gestured to Flynn. Go around the back of the house, he mimed. Flynn nodded. Bill crossed the living room, his boots squelching on the hardwood. There was only one way into the basement, a set of stairs that amounted to nothing more than a few slats of wood terminating in a damp gloom. Police, Bill called down. Every part of him was alive, vibrating. He felt each muscle in his legs contract and expand as he inched downward. Silence. He fished his flashlight off his belt and shone it around the basement. The main attraction was a yard sale's worth of pots and pans heaped on the dirt floor. Old mason jars lined the shelves. Detritus, basically. Maybe the Petersons had inherited the mess and just never bothered to clean it up. Maybe they were waiting to drag it out to the trash. Suddenly, with a guttural burp, the furnace roared to life. Bill backpedaled, tripped over the pots and pans, and landed on his ass. As he struggled to get back to his feet, a shape soared around him, the boy. But he was not on two feet. He was on all fours, scurrying like a rabbit that had been flushed from a burrow. Bill grabbed at him and missed. The kid was now at the twin doors that opened, Bill assumed, to the exterior. Flynn, Bill bellowed. The kid, who was making a husky, breathy sound, pushed both doors open and was gone. There was a slam, a squeal, and a crack of gunfire. By the time Bill had made it outside, the boy was lying on the ground with half his face missing, and Flynn was standing over him the stench of cordite blooming from the barrel of his pistol. Bill gasped. Flynn protested. He was coming at me, the young deputy said. His eyes were fixed to the puddle of blood that had stained the snow the shade of strawberry-shaved ice. Bill got on his knees and felt for the pulse he already knew would be missing. Radio it in, he said. Don't bother with an ambulance. Flynn's face was all scrunched up. Is that... It's... It's the toll kid, right? For the first time, Bill examined the dead boy's face. It was entirely unfamiliar, and he'd seen plenty of pictures of Evan Toll. This kid had dark skin, yes, but straight hair worn long, where Evans was curly and short. His eyes were green. I, actually, only one remained, gazing up at Bill as if in astonishment. I don't know who this is, Bill said, but it's not Evan Toll. 
Three hours later, the state police patrol had arrived. They cordoned off the scene and escorted Flynn to the nearest barracks for what they assured him was perfunctory questioning. Ten hours after that, Bill was back home, tossing his phone back and forth in his hand, drinking coffee and preparing himself to call the medical examiner. But something loomed over him. A premonition, you might call it. He knew he didn't want to know what the examiner had to say. And he was right. So he just sat there with his coffee until the M.E. did his job for him. Bill picked up on the third ring. Well, he grunted, get it over with. Hearing the heaviness in Bill's voice, he did as he was told. Cause of death of the victim was what you might imagine. But when the M.E. had moved on to check the rest of the kid's body, the fluids, the organs, things got, well, weird. Because this kid, he was, well, missing stuff. One kidney, for starters. And a good deal of his brain. It hadn't been from the gunshot. The missing gray matter had been, uh, missing before the arrival of Flynn's bullet. Could a person function with part of his brain gone? The examiner sure as hell didn't know. His guess was maybe yes. Although it was probably dependent on what part. You'd need a scientist to tell you that, a brain man, which wasn't him. At the very least, though, Bill thought, maybe the lack of brain would account for the screaming and the running on all fours. Any chance you have an ID, Bill asked? He wasn't expecting an affirmative answer, and definitely not one in any detail, so he was shocked to hear the M.E. utter a name, Jesse Ruiz, and an age, 13, a runaway, according to his parents, who had reported him missing four months ago and a former resident of a reform school, hence the presence of his prince in the system. Bill hung up, the same facts whistling in the circles of his head. Eben Toll had vanished into the woods behind his house, but when Bill and Flynn had gone looking for him, they'd found a different kid. One also reported missing. So where was Eben Toll? And what the hell had happened to Jesse Ruiz? The answers were there but solving them would nearly kill Bill and a bunch of other people besides. But look, it's a long story. A complicated one. Want the conclusion? You'll have to wait for the next episode of Run Fool. Run Fool is a production of Ballin Studios, Campside Media, and Atwell Media. It is hosted and executive produced by me, Rodney Barnes. This episode was written by Matt Share and produced by Abakar Adan and Lee Mengistu. It was also sound designed and mixed by Kevin Seaman. Creature vocalization by Terry Cashburn and artwork by Jessica Clogston Kiner. Production support by Jeremy Bond and Cole Lacasio. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Executive producers at Ballin Studios are Mr. Ballin, Nick Witters, and Zach Levin. Executive producers at Atwell Media are Will Malnati and Rosie Guerin. Executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Adam Hoff. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.